Would you please take the word of God and turn with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus. And we're going to look at the end of the 27th chapter and go right into the 28th chapter. So Exodus chapter 27, going into the 28th chapter. We have uh, spent some time uh, in consideration of the tabernacle and uh, specifically the furniture. We began with the furniture and by way of order we began with back in chapter 25 with the ark and the mercy seat which is a picture of Jesus Christ. That would be the place where God would, co would commune with man. Then we went into the holy place which is we found the table of shewbread and then on the other side of the table is the candlelight, that is to give light uh, without ceasing day and night. Then we considered the tabernacle with regards to the veil, or not the veil, but the fine twine linen that sits on the top. That's the tabernacle, um, embroidered with blue and purple and scarlet. And then we uh, talked about the, the four different layers. Uh, then we looked at the boards that would raise up the tabernacle. And then we looked at the veil. The veil, there are three veils. There is the veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place. There is the veil that separates the holy place from the court of the tabernacle. And then there's the veil that separates the court of the tabernacle from all the people outside. Remember only the priest... Uh, the tribe of Levi and those who were appointed to be priests uh, were able to go into uh, the tabernacle and perform the service of the tabernacle. And then outside we looked at the, took a look at the brazen altar and then the court of the congregation. Now we stopped there at the end of Exodus chapter 27, but there are two items that have not been mentioned. Uh, they will appear in chapter 30 or chapter, um, yeah, chapter 30, uh, they are the laver and the altar of incense. Uh, now I have the laver here, so I'll put it here. The laver would be, is going to sit right here, and then the uh, table of incense is going to sit right before the veil uh, that divides the holy place from the holy of holies. Now those items are not mentioned. Now those are two pieces of furniture uh, that have not been mentioned from chapter 25 of Exodus through chapter 27. And we come to chapter 28 and 29, and the emphasis here is on the priest and his garment. Now, I point this out, that there are furniture that's missing that's not mentioned yet, uh, because we are following God's order, the order that God gave to Moses to then deliver that. We have a written record of that that he is going to deliver to the people. So uh, this is not God saying, oops, I forgot. And he catches it in chapter 30. No, there is a divine purpose behind all of this. Now, so chapter 25 through chapter 27, you have the ark and the mercy seat, the table of shewbread, the candlelight, the tabernacle of the fine twine linen, the boards, the veils, the brazen altar, and the outer court. Chapter 28 and 29. Chapter 28, we're going to see specifically the garments of the priest. What is the priest adorned with? We're going to look at those. And then chapter 29 is the consecration of the priest. 
So that would be Aaron, his sons, and then the tribe of Levi. And then when we reach chapter 30 is when God brings up to Moses the altar of incense, which sits in the holy place, and then the laver, which sits before the brazen altar, before you go into the holy place. And so if we think about that, why would God give it to us, all of those furniture and the tabernacle, the court, leaving those two pieces out, but then dealing with the priests and the garments and the consecration of the priests, and then bringing up the laver and the table of incense? Well, if we follow the order, let's think about the order. Chapter 25 through chapter 27, we find how God has approached mankind, correct? Uh, this is the place where God's going to commune with man. This is God's doing. Remember, God had been meeting with Moses up on Mount Sinai. Uh, the people could not come up. The people could not touch the mountain. Uh, but here he is going to uh, erect a tabernacle in the midst that's going to sit in the midst of the congregation of Israel. And so God here has told us how he is approaching mankind, how he is making himself known to the children of Israel in the person of Christ, because everything we've seen so far points us to Jesus Christ. So God has sought to bring about unhindered fellowship with man. That's what God's trying to bring about. Chapter 25 through chapter 27. Yeah, that's why you have the ark, right? It's the place of communion. So God has ordered those things because he wants man to know that he wants to have communion with man. But wait a minute, there's another side to that, isn't there? God may desire to have communion with man, but how is man to respond? Well, we have then chapter 20 and 29, which is the priest, his garment, and his consecration. So while chapter 25 through chapter 27, we see how God has approached mankind, chapter 20. Uh, 8 and chapter 30 is we found how man is to approach God. You see, God has ordered everything. And now he institutes the Levitical priesthood and he orders things so that man might know how they are to approach God. God has made a way. For what? For man to come to him. So we might put it this way, chapter 25 through chapter 27, God has made a way. That way is in Christ. But chapter 20 and 29 and 30, when we consider the two pieces, the laver and the table of incense, these concern the activity of the priest. Something that the priest is to do before he approaches God, as he approaches God. The whole idea of priesthood has to do with fellowship. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. The whole idea of priesthood has to do with fellowship. And remember that the Christian is said, we have been made kings and priests unto God. Now, the whole idea of priesthood has to do with fellowship. And then, because once the priest and his garment and his consecration is dealt with, then you have the laver then you have the table of incense, which details the activity of the priest as he approaches God. So God has made a way for man to approach him, and now man is to approach God. 
Now that's the priest. The 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 the, the priest. Now let's read. So we're in Exodus 27, verse 20. So we're going to end chapter 27, go into chapter 28, read the first five verses of chapter 28. So notice Exodus 27, 20. And thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring thee pure olive oil beaten for the light to cause the lamp to burn always. Now let me pause here. Remember, there is a candlestick, right? A lampstand in the tabernacle. It would be logical for them to turn the light on before the priest comes in, right? Uh, in other words, you have to have light for the priest to have activity. And so God orders the people to bring the olive oil beaten with, uh, for, for the light to cause the lamp to burn always. Verse 21, In the tabernacle of the congregation, without the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall order it before evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever unto the generations on the behalf of the children of Israel. Notice chapter 28, verse 1. And take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother for glory and for beauty. And thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, and an ephod, and a robe, and a broidered coat, a miter, and a girdle. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron thy brother and his sons, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And they shall take gold and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen. I would like to bring your attention, <clears throat> notice with me, back to verse 2 of chapter 28. Thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother, notice, for glory and for beauty. I'd like to preach this evening a message that I've entitled, Holy Garments for Glory and for Beauty. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word. Lord, as we look now at the priest, his garments, his consecration, what he is adorned with, I pray that you'd help us once again to see Jesus Christ, but also that we might see the practicality of what is represented by the priest and what that means for us today as Christians. So give us understanding. And Lord, by your Spirit, as you always do, make application in our hearts how we ought to, uh, Lord, practice the truth that we hear. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice off the bat, when he says holy garments for glory and beauty, he does not say, Thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron, thy brother, for his glory and for his beauty. That's not what it says. It says, holy garments for Aaron, thy brother, for glory and beauty. And so notice here, he is pointing us to the garment themselves, not to the priest who wears the garment. The garment itself, much like the tabernacle, is to be 
representative. Now, we already know this because there's some indications here in this chapter uh, that this concerns Christ. It doesn't concern Aaron. And uh, we might say the sons of Aaron, the priests that are to follow. If you notice with me, he says in verse 3, And thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they, notice they, may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he, so that's singular, he may minister unto me in the priest's office. But notice then the next verse, and these are the garments which they shall make. So he mentions the breastplate and the ephod and a robe and a broidered coat, a mitre and a girdle. And notice, and they shall make holy garments for Aaron thy brother and his sons, plural. Notice, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. Not that they, but that he. So there's an idea here where we have a plurality of priests, but the message is singular, pointing us to one person, not to a bunch of priests, but that the picture of the, the office of the priesthood is pointing us singularly to an individual who is, by the way, Jesus Christ, as we'll see. And we're going to talk about all those garments, but this is really an introductory message to uh, the idea here of the priest and his garments and then his consecration. Uh, but these things that, are consider, that, that we are considering about the tabernacle uh, and the priesthood are to be viewed and understood as shadows, as figures of that which is to come. Uh, let me give you a few indications. For example, in the book of Hebrews, he repeatedly, as he speaks of the tabernacle and the priest, he repeatedly says that these things that we read in the Old Testament were a shadow or a figure. Uh, in Hebrews 9.8, he says, The Holy Ghost, this signifying in the past, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. While as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was the tabernacle, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. In other words, as those things could not purify the priest. They were a shadow or a figure of that which was to come, Jesus Christ. So although there was a literal tabernacle in the midst of the nation of Israel, these things were pointing us to Jesus Christ. That's why there's a message in the tabernacle, but also in the priest and in the garments and in the consecration of the priest. In Hebrews 9.24, For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. You see, it's a figure. Hebrews 10.1, For the law, he's talking specifically about the ceremonial law. For the law having a shadow of good things to come. What? The tabernacle. It's a shadow of good things to come. Right? And not the very image of the things. In other words, <laughs> although that... It points us to Christ, uh, that's, it's an imperfect image because we're dealing with earthly things. Just like the priest, Aaron, 
and we'll see some distinction in just a moment. The priest is to be a picture of Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, but the earthly priest is an imperfect image. So it's a figure, it's a shadow, although imperfectly, because it's human. Now, there's a message that we are to understand in the tabernacle and now in the priesthood from uh, the garments to the consecration, the priest's garment, by the way, was to be regarded with the highest esteem. I want us to think for that for just a moment, because when we approach this and we think, okay, well, okay, here's the garment, what's the significance of that? Well, if you turn with me, hold your place here in Exodus 28, and turn with me to the book of Leviticus chapter 16. If you come to Leviticus chapter 16, here is what should be on your mind. It details the activity of the high priest on the atonement day. Okay, that's Leviticus 16. And so it details what he is to wear, what he is to do at the brazen altar, how he is to come into the holy place, how he is to enter into the holy of holies only once a year. That's Leviticus 16. Now, in Leviticus 16, notice verse 4, as he refers to the garment, he says, He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with the linen girdle, and with the linen miter that shall be attired. These are holy garments, therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. And so, by the way, there are two sets of garments that the high priest wore. The record of Leviticus 16 details what the high priest would wear once a year on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would typically only wear a robe of fine twine linen, spotless white, pure white. That's what he typically wore. But the high priest on the Day of Atonement would put all of those things before he is to go uh, and atone for the sins of the people on the atonement day. Now, the holy garments here, as they're referred to, uh, that were to adorn the priest were seven in number. Now, go back with me to Exodus chapter 28. Now, in Exodus chapter 28, verse 4, we just read it, and maybe you already got ahead of me, you already counted them. I said seven, but you say, well, wait a minute, there's only six here. You're right, there's only six. Uh, you have the breastplate, uh, you have the ephod, you have a robe, you have a broidered coat, you have a miter, and you have a girdle. That's six. But go down to Exodus chapter 28, verse 36. Notice that the, towards the end of the chapter, And thou shalt make a plate of pure gold, and grave upon it, like the engravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And so the last item is a plate of pure gold. So that's seven. Now he mentions that later on, and we'll, we'll deal with that later, but there are seven items that the high priest would wear, and they're listed for us in Exodus chapter 28. Now the article is called the plate of gold, is called in Leviticus 8, 9, the holy crown. Now, obviously, we're not there, so I'm not going to preach on that, but it's another name for that gold plate. So important were the priestly garments that laws were given in regard to the very garments themselves. It was in Leviticus 21.10 21, that a law was given with regards to the garment, and he that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated to put on the garments, 
shall not uncover his head, nor rend his clothes. Did you catch this? The priest, with regards to the garment, he is not to rend his clothes. Now that's interesting because when you read in Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus appears before the high priest, you remember what happened? Matthew 26, 65, then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witness? By the way, if you want to think about, sometimes we uh, think about those, uh, those Jews, they had become so ritualistic that everything concerning the temple, the tabernacle, the priest, and his garments had become irrelevant. There can be such a case where you become so ritualistic, say, well, that's what you're supposed to want, that you completely disregard everything that it's supposed to represent. Uh, the high priest, before Jesus Christ, rent his robe, even though he knew the law had said, you're not allowed to do that. So this is a serious matter to God. By the way, if he doesn't understand how the garments themselves are representative of Jesus Christ and his work, no wonder he would rent the garment. It would be just like another garment. You see, the high priest is also an Aaron and his sons is a shadow, yet there is also a contrast in the book of Hebrews, uh, between Aaron and Christ spelled out. And, and let's turn there. Again, we're thinking about the priest, but I want to lay the groundwork for how there are, there's a contrast be, between the earthly priest that the children of Israel had surrounding the tabernacle and Jesus Christ, who is our high priest. Now let's begin in uh, Hebrews chapter 4. If you turn there, Hebrews chapter 4. <clears throat> Now, just review, what does the office of priest have to do with? It has to do with what? I said at the beginning, fellowship, right? Fellowship. The whole idea about a priest is about fellowship. He is the one that is going to be at the place of communion. He is the one that's going to be at the table of fellowship, the table of shoe bread, and partake of the bread that's there at the table. And so it's about, it's about fellowship. Now, in Hebrews chapter 4, when speaking of Jesus Christ, the book of Hebrews, you want a, a good theme for the book of Hebrews? Jesus Christ is better. <laughs> chapter 1, he's better than angels. Uh, he's uh, better than Melchizedek. He's better than Aaron. Jesus Christ is better than anything. He is a better sacrifice. He is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. That's the theme of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. And so in uh, Hebrews 4, notice verse 14, uh, he says, uh, Seeing then that we have a great high priest. Now, what you think about that word? Uh, I would circle that word great. You know why? Uh, for example, we think about there are shepherds. But the Bible uses the word, there is the great shepherd. No man in the Bible is ever, ever referred to apart from Christ as the great shepherd. There are a lot of high priests, priests in, in the Bible, Old and New Testament. But no priest is referred to as the great high priest. And so here we have a contrast. This is not just another high priest. This is the great high priest. There is none like him. Just like he is the great shepherd, there is none like him. And so he says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest 
that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we, by the way, when he says that is passed into the heavens, the picture that we would have in our minds is just like the high priest would come once a year and he would pass into the Holy of Holies, the place where nobody was permitted. Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, is passed into hev the heavens where we cannot go. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, if you think about the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 5, he documents and speaks of the activity of the earthly priests that the children of Israel had, chapter 5. But in chapter 7 of Hebrews, he puts Jesus Christ in contrast with the earthly priest. So Hebrews chapter 5, notice what he says about the earthly priest, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained of men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, uh, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. So, so the one who is compassed with infirmity is the earthly priest. Now in contrast to that, go to Hebrews chapter 7. Notice with me, verse 26. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. You see, the earthly priest, he came along with what? Infirmities. But our great high priest, he came along and he was holy, harmless, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. There's a contrast there. Um, in chapter 5, verse 3, he says, And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people so also for himself to offer for sins. Now, that's what the earthly priest did, right? When he came and uh, here's what he had to do. He, before he had to uh, offer the sacrifice for the sin of the people, he had to offer a sacrifice for himself. He had to. That's the earthly priest. So Jesus, however, you go to chapter 7 and verse 27. Notice, who, Jesus, who is made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. And so there's a contrast here. The high priests, they had to offer sacrifice for themselves and then for the people's sin. Jesus Christ did not have to offer an offer a sacrifice for himself because he offered himself without sin to God. So the high priests, they all throughout those times, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. The great high priest, Jesus Christ, did not need to offer sacrifices for his own sins. If you notice with me, if you're still there in chapter 7, notice verse 21. In parenthesis, he says, For those priests in the Old Testament that we read about were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, the high priests in the Old Testament, they were made priests without an oath. 
What does that mean? Well, if you remember, um, uh, the sons of Aaron were cut off from being priests, right? Nadab and Abihu, they were cut off. Eli's sons later, they are cut off, right? Because their office came without an oath. In other words, it was not something that was eternal. But our great high priest is made a high priest forever. There's an oath attached to his priesthood. In uh, chapter 7, notice verse 16, who is made not after the law of carnal commandments, but after the power of an endless life. He's contrasting here the priest of the Old Testament with Jesus Christ. Uh, you see, the high priests in the Old Testament were mortal, and therefore their office at some point would cease, and then somebody else would take it up. <laughs> but Jesus, our great high priest, was made a priest not after the law of carnal commandments. He uses the word carnal commandments because uh, you know what brings about uh, sin? Death. They die because they're carnal. But the great high priest, Jesus Christ, was made a priest after the power of an endless life. So, we see there's a great contrast. Now, those, they, the Old Testament priests, they are a figure, a shadow of Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, although there are contrasts between the two. That it is a figure, but it is an imperfect figure. Here is how Jesus Christ is much better than the Old Testament priest. Much better. Incomparable. Now, when we lay this out, if you go back with me to, let's go to back to Exodus chapter 28. So, why do we cover all of this? Verse, chapter 20, verse 1. And take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And thou shalt make holy garments of Aaron thy brother for glory and for beauty. Surrounding the tabernacle, there would be a lot of activity. Christ, it's a figure of Christ. The priest is a figure also of the ministry of Christ for us. Uh, the Bible puts it this way. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he says there is, there is one God and then one mediator. We might even put the word priest, right? Because that's what a priest is. He's a mediator. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He mediates. He is the one, in a sense, as a priest, if priest is about fellowship, he is the one uh, that has God on one side and has man on the other side and brings them together into fellowship, right? In Christ. By the way, the veil, that is to say his flesh, was open, he, he opened up uh, the possibility for man to have communion and fellowship with God. Now, the reason why this is important, uh, one of the Baptist distinctives is the priesthood of every believer. The priesthood of every believer. 
I was reading from a, a commentary, and he was talking about that the Levitical, uh, summarizing the Levitical order, and he said that today the Roman Catholic Church perpetuates the Levitical order, claiming that her priests, like Aaron and his sons, are specifically authorized and qualified to go to God on the behalf of their fellow men. That's how the Roman Catholic Church functions. If you today were a Roman Catholic and you wanted absolution of your sin, you would not go to God. You would have to go to the priest. You'd have to go into the confession. And then the priest would give you, he would on your behalf, come to God and then give you absolution of your sin. And let me say that's very similar to the Levitical order. Right? And so there's, a, in a sense, some, um, uh, there is an aspect of um, the Levitical priesthood, but there's also some paganism included in that. And it's all merged together. And what I'm saying to us is we don't need a priest, an earthly priest, because we have Jesus Christ. He is the great high priest. And so we don't need a man to come to God. We have Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus Christ, when he came to them, he, he gave when he told them, uh, when he pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And when he prayed, he would tell his disciples, when you pray, when you come to God, uh, pray in my name. Indicating what? That you don't need to come to a priest anymore. You can go directly to God the Father through me. Through me. He has opened, he has consecrated for us a new and living way. You see, Jesus Christ, who is pictured in the priest, He is the one who brings us in to the presence of God to have communion with God. We don't need a priest anymore to do that. We have a greater priest than an earthly priest. Remember, it was back uh, when we looked at the contrast, it was back in uh, Hebrews 4 when He said, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. See, we don't need this tabernacle anymore. Because Jesus Christ went straight to heaven, the Son of God. He said, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not, we have not, here's for all those who are Roman Catholic, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But was in all points tempted like as we are without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, the book of uh, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. Notice Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the, what? Blood of Jesus. By a, what? New and living way. 
Why did you say new and living way? Well, God had ordered all the activity. But remember, all the activity was, to, was a shadow or a figure. The activity itself did nothing for man. It did nothing. The sacrifice could not take away their sins. It could not. And this was all ritualistic, but it was to be a figure. And now that we have Jesus Christ who died on the cross to pay for our sin debt, and the veil of heaven has been rent in twain from top to bottom, now there is a new and living way. Not uh, a way that is patterned after the deadness of the rituals, but something that's true, something that's alive, something that's new, something that's fresh, something that's wonderful. And so it's a new and living way, which He, God, Jesus, hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say His flesh, through His death on the cross, that new and living way has been consecrated. So verse 21, And having an high priest over the house of God, let us, you and I, Christian, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, there is a new and living way consecrated for us. So Jesus, when we're going to look at the priest and his garments, every single component of his garment is going to point us to Jesus Christ. We're going to see a visual representation of what it means that Jesus Christ would take us with him into the Holy of Holies. Through all the activity of what the priest is to do. And we're going to see that. But I want us to understand here that we as Christians have a great high priest pictured in the activity of the priest in the tabernacle. But there is something further that we understand about priesthood is that we as Christians not only have a great high priest, but we ourselves have been made priests. So what does that mean? Turn with me to 1 Peter and chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, notice with me verse 5. Ye also, as lively stones, are built upon a spiritual house, an holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, also, it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders is hallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye, ye, Christian, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What's the whole point about the priesthood? Fellowship. Fellowship is granted because of our great high priest. He brings us in. And now that we've been brought in, we are at that very moment, we are made priests unto God. We already read in Hebrews 10, 18, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood 
of Jesus. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We think about, he mentions here, what do the priests do? They, they offer sacrifices, don't, do they not? Yeah, they do. Uh, turn with me back to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. He deals with some practical aspects of their service. Notice Hebrews 13, verse 15, just a few pages to your left. He says, By Him, therefore, by Christ, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. Notice, what kind of sacrifice do we offer? What we just did tonight a moment ago. Praise to God. You know when you praise God, that's a sacrifice. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. Say, well, I know what they did, and how can we today, you know, they would offer a sacrifice and the flesh stunk, it was unpleasant. You know the type of sacrifices we, we offer? Thanksgiving to God by His name. I thank God for this. I thank God for that. And we do, we do that every Sunday night. Say, Pastor, why do we always do that? Because that's us offering a sacrifice to God. He says in um, verse 15, Hebrews 13, 15, or back in verse 10, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. In other words, the priest who would offer the sacrifices, they would partake of the meat. They would eat it. Just like the Passover. Remember, they would offer the lamb, and then they would eat of the lamb. Uh, and so the a priest would partake of the physical meat, and that was their sustenance. And so he says, we believers, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. In other words, all the service of the tabernacle, they ate physical food, but that was not the same spiritual food that we eat. And there is no service of the tabernacle that would make them worthy to eat what we are eating in Christ. He says, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. And then he says, by him, therefore, let us offer sacrifice of praise to God continually. Let me just say it's a very healthy thing and it's a wonderful thing for us to consistently, repeatedly, daily be thankful to God. And just thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Now, with the application for us, you know, I, um, I just spoke just a moment ago about um, a lot of the rituals here have been carried into the Roman Catholic Church. By the way, a lot of different religions have a lot of rituals. And by the way, we as Christians, we condemn that because we understand the Bible. We condemn those rituals. But if we condemn the rituals and we do not live by the new and living way, how hypocritical. How hypocritical of us. 
to condemn those who live by a ritualistic religion. And we who have a new and living way do not live by that living way. Now, the direct thing is, we, we just read it in, in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, when he said that because we have uh, this new and living way, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace. You see, now we try to have order in a meeting when we meet together in church. And certainly that's good. But we don't do things by way of ritual. You know, rituals are, are dead. They become insignificant. Right? Okay, we, this is what we do. And they become robotic in nature. And we lose the meaningfulness of things. So how do we keep, how do we keep ourselves from becoming ritualistic? Well, since we are priests, since we are part of a royal priesthood, the whole idea of a priesthood is fellowship. So let me ask you this. I'm not asking tonight, are you saved? Although that's a good question. I hope you're saved tonight. But I'm asking you this pointed question, how is your fellowship with God? And what I mean by that is the fellowship is the place of communion where God speaks to us and we speak to God. We, by this new living way, can come boldly into the throne of grace. The veil has been rent in twain, we can go into the Holy of Holies. I think it's hypocritical of us to say, well, we, we, we reject the rituals of Roman Catholicism. But are we living by the new and living way that has been consecrated for us through Christ? Through Christ. I think the only way for us not to become ritualistic is to take full advantage of the fact that we have been made priests unto God that we can approach God. You know, sometimes we may get the idea that, well, uh, although that's important to have a, a time of personal devotion, maybe when you read God's Word and you pray and you have some things that you uh, ask the Lord for, but as Christians, uh, even that can become ritualistic. We say, well, you got to get up in the morning, you got to read your Bible for 30 minutes, you got to pray for 20 minutes, and you got to do this, and you got to do that. And then you can do things just so that you can put a check mark, and that can become ritualistic where there's no life anymore. No life anymore. You know, often we speak of devotions, devotion, have devotions, have devotions. You know what we need more than devotions? We need to live a devotional life. A devotional life. And what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes you, and, and that may happen in your life. I know it's happened in my life. Wake up a little later than usual. You got to get the day going. You got to run. And then you leave your home and you feel bad. Well, I wasn't able to have a quiet time of devotions and of prayer and of reading my Bible. I didn't have that opportunity. And then you feel bad for the rest of the day. Instead of having a devotional life, and maybe you get in your car and you ride to work and you say, Lord, I'm sorry I woke up a little late this morning, but... I just want to thank you today. And on your work, 
pray and thank God and praise God. Offer some sacrifices to God. What I'm saying is live a devotional life. Don't be when some needs you're in the middle of work and sometimes send you a, some, somebody sends you a text message says, Hey, there's a need here. Would you pray for me? Or you hear bad news. says, Well, uh, I got to get home so I can pray and read my Bible. How about you pray right then? By the way, you can pray while you're driving. I'm not saying close your eyes. Keep your eyes wide open. But there's not a verse in the Bible that says you have to close your eyes to pray. As a matter of fact, much of the prayers in the Bible is men lifting up their eyes to heaven and their hands outstretched to God. See, sometimes in our mind we have an idea of what it means to have fellowship with God. And we limit it to devotions. No, let us live a devotional life. Why? Because it's a new and living way. And we have to be careful. Although I believe that there are to be disciplines in the Christian life, sometimes discipline can replace devotion, true devotion. And we can become prideful to where, well, I can, if anybody asks me if I read my Bible every day this week, I can say, oh yeah, I read it. I had devotions. But that can be a ritual. And by the way, you can read your Bible every day during the week and leave the moment of devotion and not live a devotional life. And there's a difference. So let's emphasize in our lives. Now, by the way, I, I believe it's important to, to spend some time in God's Word to pray. But sometimes if we're not careful, we, we limit things, several aspects of our lives. We put God in a box. Excuse me, and we say, God, I have 20 minutes for you this morning, so you better speak to me in those 20 minutes. Instead of saying, it's a new day today, God, throughout the day, I want to get to know you better. Not for the 20 minutes, although that's important, but through the day. And so let us learn to live. Uh, you know, sometimes we we'll say, pray, pray, pray. No, may the spirit of prayer be in us. A need comes, you know, uh, sometimes I think it would, it would help us if a co-worker comes and says, oh, you know, I have this need. Don't be ashamed to say, well, is it okay if I pray for you? I'm going to guarantee you if your co-workers have needs and you say, is it okay if I pray for you? They're going to say, okay. I've never had anybody, even people who are atheists, who have a tragedy happen in their lives, and if I say, well, can I pray with you? They've never said no. But what I'm saying here is that in that very moment, can we not come boldly to the throne of grace and learn to live that devotional life? So, may the Lord help us to see the difference. This, all of this, and this is, has, is, is a figure, but it's ritual to point us to Christ. We have a new and living way. We're not bound by a place. We're not bound by a time we have Christ. And any moment, any day, any time, any place, we can come to God in Christ.